Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Carly Ray. Carly is a TV writer for HBO's upcoming Watchmen. Previously, she was also a writer for Westworld, The Leftovers, and Mad Men. These are all huge, impressive shows. Carly, congrats. Welcome Thank to the you. show. <laughs> Super excited to have you on board. So uh, yeah, welcome. And I'm imagining that you are in LA, given your I, career. <laughs> I am, yeah. I've managed to uh, be on shows that are all here, basically, since Mad Men. I'm apparently hanging on to LA for dear life. And you mentioned that at one point you were in New York. What made you decide to go to LA? What's New York ever in the cards? Is there a world for TV writers in New York? Supposedly there is. I, I definitely have friends who've been on shows. I have a friend right now who's on Good Fight, which I know is out there. There are a handful of shows that are still writing in New York and some that write here and shoot there. I was in New York during a period in which I was failing to get work as a TV writer. You know, I went to USC grad school, film school, and I came out of USC feeling like I was raring to go. Like, I, this is great. This is going to be my, my ticket straight into the business. And that didn't happen. So I ended up spending six or seven years kind of in the wilderness, just working crappy day jobs and trying to write. And during that period, I moved to New York because I was just, I was trying to find work that would let me out at four o'clock, five o'clock was enough to pay my rent, but that could leave me space and time to write. So in other words, not an assistant job here, which is what I had been doing. And I was working around the clock and not writing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to run away to New York for a couple of years. And I did just that. Worked uh, a bunch of crappy copywriting jobs. I wrote coupons. I worked oh, wow. for like a, a couple of companies like Groupon that left me time to work on scripts and stuff. And so I was out there loving living in New York, but I couldn't figure out how to break in to the business there. And I just happened to have a friend here who was working in casting on Mad Men. And she called to say, Matthew Weiner's reading for the writer's assistant. You know, do you want to send a script? And I said, yes, just because I thought, you know, man, even if I could just get that meeting, there's no way my TV career is going to start on my favorite show of all time. Wow. Um, but I you know, sent my script and got the call that I could interview for the job and ended up back in L.A. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, but I still like, you know, I was saying before the show, my, my goal at some point is to figure out a way to get back to New York working in TV. Yeah. You said that you needed to send a script to get that first role. Did they give yeah. you any guidance on what that was? Was that a spec of a different show? Was it a spec for Mad Men? What did it look like? No, it was interesting. So I got a call by my friend who was working in casting just said, all it is, Matthew Weiner likes to promote from within. I know a lot of people who worked on Mad Men came up from the writer's assistant position, which is not always true of writer's assistant positions. And one of the reasons that he asks for a script from a writer's assistant, which is also not always true, is that he really wants someone who's eager to become a writer and he can he wants to be able to judge how close you are to being able to be a writer a staffable writer and he also the way that he works in particular with a writer's assistant which is also not always the case matt 
at least on Mad Men, wrote by dictation. So you would sit in the room with him after the writer's room would close, and then he would write after hours by just saying the show out loud. And as the writer's assistant, you would sit and copy it down. And so it's just the two of you, and he will run into, you know, roadblocks and scenes, and he wants to be able to talk it out. So he wants someone in that chair who wants to think like a writer and who wants to learn how to write the show. So in terms of what to send, all I was told is that he was looking for a script that would surprise him. At that point, specs of existing shows were kind of starting to fall out of favor. Most people were writing original pilots, and the advice was to write an original pilot. I feel fairly certain they would not have been able to read a Mad Men spec. Most shows, just for legal reasons, won't ah, read interesting. specs you know, of their own show. So I just sent a pilot that I had been working on in that previous year. And I actually had, that was a half hour. So I thought, okay, well, I, I want to be able to send an hour as well, in case the half hour is off-putting. Although... It turned out, I think I heard from Matt months later that he liked that. Matt came up before going to The Sopranos. He was a, a comedy writer. So, and, he, and Mad Men is very funny, which I think is very undersung. One of the undersung qualities of Mad Men is that it's very funny. It has kind of a comedy writer's heart. But I, I sent a half hour, and then just a couple of days after getting the call that I could send a script, I sat down and wrote another drama sample to go for just a couple of days and sent that one as well, which I still use as a sample for things, really. I was panic-written. I was like, you know, this is my chance. I have a a chance to put my foot in the door at Mad Men, and I I wanted to make the most of it. So, yeah, I I don't know. With other writers' assistant jobs now, I'm not sure if people, if showrunners, if the majority of showrunners prefer to read scripts for those jobs or not, I would say to anyone who wants to get a writer's assistant job, you should already be writing and know that that's your path. So you should always, you know, always have the script ready to go in case someone asks for it. And then you got the job, obviously, and you were working as a writer's assistant. How long did that take for you to get that official writer's role job? Were you a story editor at any point as well? Walk us through kind of what role you had and how that works. Yeah, fairly incredibly, I was promoted after just one year. So I started as the writer's assistant on season six, and then I was promoted to staff writer season seven, and it was the, the final season of the show. And story editor is like, so the, the rungs of writer on a show, staff writer is the lowest level, and then story editor, executive story editor, and so on up to executive producer. So staff writer is the baby level, and I was staff writer for season seven, and then I went on to a short-lived NBC show right after where I was staff writer again before starting to uh, climb the ladder. But yeah, I, you know, it only took me a year, which I was really incredibly grateful for because I know that's not always the case. You can end up a writer's assistant for a handful of cycles before getting that that first bump to writer. As far as your other gigs that you've gotten, once you get a writer's job, is it easy to just, you know, this show has ended, let's go out for this next one? Is it because you worked on Mad Men? Is that kind of like a calling card? That's kind of a big show, right? No, yeah. Well, it's interesting. No, I would say it's definitely not easy. I don't think, I don't think it's ever easy. And I lucked out with some very good, clear advice. People will often tell you in the business that getting the second job can actually be harder than getting the first job. And that's because first jobs are often someone has been promoted from within, you know, someone's bumping their writer's assistant or, you know, a show. I think this is changing a little bit, but at the time, six, seven years ago, there were often only one staff writer on a show and that was someone who was promoted from within. But then once, say, that show gets canceled or you personally are not brought back to the next level, then you're out trying to get a story editor job, a second level job. And that can be very, that can just be very complicated. So I got the advice from Matthew Weiner to not try and go and match mad men in the marketplace. You know, there were, there was some wisdom from some corners that were, that said, don't waste your mad men credit, quote unquote, 
Now, this idea that you're starting out with one of the most prestigious credits that TV has right now. So you should only go work on another prestigious cable show. Masters of Sex at the time was an, you know, one that was like, that's where you should go with your, your Mad Men credit. But Matt actually sat me down and said, you know, you're at the very, very beginning of your career. There are not shows that look like Mad Men in its final season. And what he means by that is it's, it's a completely cloistered experience. You know, by that point, it was so celebrated and Matt had so much creative control. That was very rare. It remains rare in, you know, in other television shows. So he was like, just go get a job in television. Say yes. Like, don't worry if it doesn't seem like the kind of show that you should be writing or that it's too different from Mad Men. Go be in another writer's room and learn how to work in television. And so because of that, I was just up for, you know, I said yes to every meeting. I was, it had taken me more years than I wanted it to, to break into television. So by that point, I was not interested in being picky and potentially spitting myself back out of the business. So I just went through staffing season, you know, with full enthusiasm and very much ended up on a show that was not obvious. It was a, a show called Constantine on NBC that was a Friday night genre show based on a long running graphic novel, which I had zero familiarity with. I would never have thought of myself as a genre writer. Although since then, my career has sort of done, uh, I, I've done quite a bit of big genre shows. But at the time, I was just like, okay, you know, I'm just going to say yes and see what happens. So I got very fortunate because I know people who it can take a couple of years after their first job to land that second one. So I got lucky, but also was just saying yes to whatever came my way at that point. How did the, uh, the leftovers come about? Yeah. So very quickly, I went from Mad Men to Constantine. Constantine was short-lived. It got canceled. I went from Constantine to, in a bit of a weird timing thing, I went on to Mindhunter, which is a Netflix show that only recently came out. We actually wrote the first season of it quite a handful of years before it actually oh, ended wow. up getting released with David Fincher show. So I worked on that. And then I went and worked on another short-lived show that on FX called Bastard Executioner, which was Kurt Sutter's follow-up to Sons of Anarchy. It was his next show after Sons of Anarchy, also short-lived. So it was after that that I went to The Leftovers. And The Leftovers was one of my favorite shows at the time. So sort of like with Mad Men, I thought, if I can just get the meeting, Damon Lindelof is a hero of mine. You know, Lost was absolutely formative for me. And I had always really held him up as one of my, you know, just one of the icons in the business that I paid very close attention to. So I just wanted the meeting. I just wanted to meet Damon and say, I love the leftovers. It was for, he was staffing for season three. And funnily enough, my agents were preparing me for that meeting. And they said, you know, you're going to want to talk about Mad Men. He loves Mad Men. He loves that you were a writer <laughs> on Mad Men. So I went into the meeting and what Damon really wanted to talk about was Constantine. That's this funny. job that I felt very sheepish about, you know, but he wanted to know why it didn't work because he had known the graphic novels. He's like, tell me about the creative process on Constantine. But we hit it off in that meeting and I ended up on The Leftovers and maintained that relationship. So I went from The Leftovers to Westworld and after Westworld, Damon approached me about coming to join him on Watchmen. How many episodes are you usually writing per show? My experience, and I think it is, certainly different writers' rooms can have a different approach to assigning scripts and how writers work either on script or in the room. But I think the most traditional experience is the one that I've had most often, which is all of the writers are in the room breaking the season. And so here you are breaking episode one in the room and you break it out to the point of a solid outline. And then a writer gets assigned to go off with that outline and write the script. But we're talking, you know, it could be they've got five days to do that. Or they've got two weeks to do that. 
I've been in rooms where if you get assigned the script, here's your outline, you're writing episode three, you can go away for two weeks and write your script. And then you come back and join the room in progress that's now breaking episode four, episode five. And I've been in rooms where you're not allowed to leave the room. So if you're writing episode three, then during the day, you're in the room helping you know, break the outline for episode four. And at night, you're going home and working on your draft of episode three. So my experience, and I think it's the more traditional one, is when you're on a show as a writer, you're on for the entire run, however many months it is that you're covering your you know, 8, 10, 12, 22 episodes. And it depends on how many writers are in the room and how the showrunners like to assign scripts that and how long the run of the show is that determines how many scripts you'll get over the course of the show. You know, on the leftovers, I had one that I co-wrote with an incredible writer, Patrick Somerville. And then on the left on uh, Westworld, I had three scripts. So it's very variable from show to show, but it hasn't been my experience that you write one script and, and then bug off to the next show. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> as far as your upcoming show, Watchmen, I know you can't talk a lot about it, what was the lead time yeah. between Westworld and getting that gig? Was there an overlap? At what point did you move on from Westworld and how did that all go down? Yeah, so I was on Westworld season two for the long haul, basically. I ended the leftovers and four days later, like the, the leftovers room wrapped. And four days later, I went to Westworld season two. So I was there when we opened the writer's room on Westworld season two and fairly non traditionally. I stayed all the way through to the end of post. So I was on that show for a little over 18 months. You know, we were in the room for a handful of months. And then because of the unique way that Westworld season two was shot, it was sort of shot, not, okay, we're shooting episode one, and then we wrap episode one, and now we're shooting episode two, and then we wrap episode two. Because it's such a gigantic show, any given episode could be shooting at the same time, or you could be shooting pieces of episode two, you know, over the course of several months. So traditionally, if you're on a show and it's like, okay, I wrote episode three and I'm being sent to set to cover the episode that I wrote. And that's going to be two weeks of me on set covering episode two. And then I'm going to go back to the writer's room. Westworld was not like that. You know, the writer's room closed and then production happened. And Jonah and Lisa were very, they really empowered me to be able to get involved in production, even on production on episodes that I didn't write to just grow as a producer. I had expressed to them early on that I wanted to get like really hone some skills as an onset producer. I hadn't had as much set experience as I had wanted. And I feel like that was really important to eventually becoming a showrunner. And they, both Jonah and Lisa were really great about just letting me, you know, get in there and become an actual producer, you know, produce the show, learn how to make the show. So that was an incredible experience. And then I was allowed to stay on through post to work on the episodes that I had written and been a part of shooting. So I went all the way to the end. And during episode, like while we were shooting Westworld season two, the Watchmen room opened and I wasn't a part of it. Damon asked me if I could come. I was busy at Westworld. And the Watchmen room was fairly unique because they were, the room was open before they shot the pilot. They were already, you know, doing some long season thinking before they shot the pilot. They were shooting the pilot around the time that Westworld Post was wrapping. So I was able to get into contact with Damon after Westworld Season 2 wrapped, and he let me come over mid-season, which is also fairly rare. You usually set your writer's room at the beginning, and those are your writers through the duration. But we worked really well together on The Leftovers. He was looking to just add a couple of more sets of hands as that show went into production to just sort of help get outlines and scripts out. So 
I joined Watchmen in progress. Is <laughs> the short answer. I gave you the world's longest answer. <laughs> All um, good. Yeah. Obviously, if you can't say, you can't say, but it's still obviously in production. I would imagine. In production, yeah. Production. Okay. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. Is there a date for the release of that? That's a really good question. I believe it's this fall, but I don't know if HBO has set the actual gotcha. um, date for it. But okay, it's coming cool. soon. That is very exciting. Coming soon. And the stuff, you know, the, yeah, the, the footage coming out of, it's an incredible, incredible team that's shooting it. And uh, the stuff coming out that I've seen looks fantastic. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited. And then as far as that's your current gig. So as you work on that show, obviously, you never quite know if the second season or so, I would assume, is going to be renewed or what goes through a writer's mind when you're in production and nearing that end of that season? That's a great question. You know, on Watchmen and in my current situation, it's a little different. Traditionally, if you're on a show, particularly if you're on a, like say a network show, as the show is nearing the end, like even as it's could be on a network show as it's starting to air and you're watching the ratings and trying to figure out All like, right. oh God, are we going to get canceled? <laughs> are we going to get brought back? You are starting to have to do a really complicated math in your head of, you know, can I find an interim short-term gig? Is that possible before I know whether or not this one's coming back or can I hang on? It depends on if the show's coming back and let's say they're going to start the writer's room for the next season three months from now. Can you hang on? Can you go take a traditional hiatus? Do you have enough money in the bank? And how long can you wait to see, you know, if the show is going to be brought back? How long can you hold on? What does your contract say? There's lots of uncomfortable situations where you're contractually obligated to return, but the return's not going to happen for six months and you have to eat <laughs> between now and six months from now. So you have to, you know, have a conversation with the showrunner about going and trying to find another job either in the meantime or instead. It can be very, very stressful to wait and see if your show, particularly if you really love it, is coming back and whether or not you can hang on until that room opens again and those paychecks get turned back on. My case now, I was a co-EP on Watchmen and I am in what's called an overall deal at HBO. So that means that I am developing pilots of my own, developing shows of my own with the network in addition to working on shows that they have. So, you know, Watchmen won't air for several months. And then even once it does air, you know, whatever its future could be very, very long. That could be a very long game. If there were to be a writer's room for season two, it could be months and months and months away. So in the meantime, I will kind of go on to do other stuff with HBO right now and uh, make that decision when it happens. Is that common to be, I know we've talked to some writers for Netflix who work on only Netflix shows. Is that becoming a more common thing where someone's... Yeah, well, there's you know, there, there's two situations. One where you end up working on shows for the same network. You could go work on other shows, but you end up, say, you know, staying on shows at FX or staying on shows at Netflix. And that's just a function of your relationships. If you develop a good relationship and you have a good reputation, say, because you've done really well in a Netflix show, so Netflix is kind of paying attention to you and they want it, they know that you turn in good work. They know that you work well with the showrunner they are excited about what you might personally create, then Netflix is going to like to see you on a list for their, you know, their show. So you can end up kind of just staying in the family there. And then the next level of that is entering a thing called an overall deal where you are exclusive to that network. And you are, there's complications inside of this, but right. fundamentally you're paid by the network instead of by the show, you're paid by the year. And what your year looks like could be, hey, we need you over here for two weeks on this show. Okay, now we need you over here, you know, for a month on this show. Here's a book, you know, we want you to 
try and adapt. So in that case, those deals, some people really, really want them. They can be really exciting, an exciting thing to get to a point in your career where a network wants to have you exclusively and is willing to pay you for it. You know, that's, that can be very exciting. And then there are some writers for whom that's too, that's too constricting. You know, they want to be able to go and work on a show at Netflix and sell a show to FX, which you couldn't do if you were inside an overall deal. So there's a bunch of different configurations, but a lot of people will end up with the same network just because they've um, built really good relationships. We're excited to talk to you maybe a little bit more about process now. Are you cool to sure. kind of school us on a little bit more in the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of the writing process, the writer's room, all that stuff? Yeah, of course. Cool. So I guess the first uh, question, walk us through your first day in the writer's room. What's your voice? What are those other voices in there? And kind of what's it like? Yeah. So, I mean, day one, as the writer's assistant on Mad Men, I don't think I've ever been more intimidated by anything <laughs> in my entire life. Yeah, it felt like, you know, coming in season six, it felt like just completely hallowed ground. Not only had I been wanting to get into TV, but Mad Men, of all things. Right. Those were writers that I had admired, and it seemed incredible that I could sit in the room and, and listen to them. So as, the, as a writer's assistant, your number one job is to capture in the notes the process of the writer's room, the conversation of the writer's room, the progress of the writer's room. So at the very beginning of a season, Madman's a great example um, of a really traditional way of doing it. The room sits down in the first couple of weeks and talks about the entire season at the 30,000 foot level. Where are our characters coming from, from last season? What are the main goals of getting, you know, what are we hoping to accomplish over the course of this year? And on Mad Men, that's the first couple of days. You have the showrunner coming in and really monologuing. You know, Matthew Weiner had a lot of Mad Men in his head and already planned out for years. So, you know, season six, he's coming in and saying, okay, they're going to open a California office. Don's going to, you know, get here in his relationship with Megan, here in his relationship with the um, agency. So he's monologuing and saying, these are the big, big goals. And then on Mad Men, he would send the writers away for a day and the writers would have to come back with 10 pitches for storyline ideas. You know, Peggy gets an apartment or Megan gets on a soap opera and they would go around the room and each writer would pitch episode ideas and the room would weigh in on them. And that is sort of like this great microcosm of the way that the writer's room works moving forward, which is someone pitches a basic idea and then someone can add to it. Oh, I like that. What if, or, you know, they always say the great game to play is yes. And the phrase you always want to have, you don't want to just say, Oh, I don't like that. Uh, you want to say, that's interesting. What about this twist on that story and this twist on that story? And it becomes in its best case, this very free ranging creative conversation where you're building out story ideas. So in that case, it was just building this giant hopper of cool episode ideas, of cool character ideas that Matt is weighing in on and changing a little bit and adding to. And then you step back and say, okay, so here are all the ideas for where the season could go. Here are all of these interesting little story ideas. Let's start talking about the premiere. Where does episode one start? Where does episode one stop? And then you start, you get ever more micro with each passing day. You know, at first it's, okay, it's, in general, it's going to be these, these three or four stories in the premiere. And then you get less and less general over the course of a couple of weeks as you get down to an outline. Literally, these are the 
handful of scenes in this order. And then you have an outline that someone is going to go write a script from. As the writer's assistant, all of that free-ranging conversation has to get captured because you need to be able to tell people where they've come from. Well, what was that idea we were discussing this morning? What was that thing that Matt said, that Lisa said about, you know, you're the person who has to be the keeper of that information. So it's about being an absolutely, you know, riveted and engaged listener and an incredible note taker. On that show, the notes were like uh, doing a transcript of what was happening. So you just had to like type like the wind. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You've been on multiple TV shows. How consistent is the process in the writer's room? Have you found that it's pretty much the same? Or are there different ways in which to go about writing and breaking episodes? Most of the shows that I've been on have followed roughly the same approach. You know, this idea of the first couple of weeks, we're talking about the whole season. And then the next couple of weeks, we are drilling down on, you know, it could be, okay, here's the eight episodes, and we're going to roughly put up cards for where the characters might need to land at different points in the season. So like on the leftovers, it's like, okay, we're going to talk about it. Damon comes in with the book of Kevin is going to be a thing in this season. So when does Kevin find out that it's being written about him at what point does he actually get it in his hands and then at what point does he agree maybe there's something to it so you put up these big marks that could change like okay maybe that is in episode three maybe that's going to happen in episode six and then you drill down to okay well let's talk about episode one most of the shows that i've been on kind of follow that approach blue sky slightly more granular blue sky and then really granular episode by episode work and in each case you have the writer's assistant taking notes and the writer's assistant who is organizing those notes and helping to shape the outline. That has largely been the case across shows. And then to answer your earlier question, the staff writer then like getting the bump into actually participating in the writer's room is very interesting. The staff writer role can be kind of different across shows in terms of how much the showrunner wants to hear you. 
there are very old school shows and very old school showrunners who feel like the staff writer should be more often seen than heard. <laughs> but, right. you know, you're still the lowest level. So you're here to, you know, do help with research and, you know, support the other writers in whatever ways you can. But, you know, the important thing when you first make that leap is to start figuring out how your voice and how your ideas can be helpful to the show and to the showrunner. Is there a particular aspect of TV writing, uh, whether it's dialogue or world building or, you know, arcs that you find the most fun? And also, is there one that you're particularly good at? And are they the same? Oh, man, that's such a great question. That's such a great question. It's interesting. It changes. I love dialogue. I love scene work. I really love scene work. I, I have been brought in in various cases in, in the short term on a couple of shows that I didn't mention to help do what's called a dialogue pass on a script and you know where you can go in and, and help polish or tweak uh, the dialogue to make sure it sounds the characters all have their own unique voice. I love that. And I want to believe that I'm good at it. I feel like I've got, <laughs> I've gotten some forms of validation that I'm, I'm good at it. I am in awe of people who are really incredible at world building. I'm in awe of it. And I, it's something that I, I strive to get better and better and better at. There are some people, Damon is a um, shining example. So is, so is Jonah or Jonah and Lisa. Just the, the level of imagination that they can access in just imagining all of the possibilities for this, particularly this world that is not ours, all of the details that go into that. That's something I love doing, but I feel like it's something I strive to get better at every day, broadening my imagination to those kinds of, those kinds of heights. There's nothing greater than, than sitting in a room with someone who's amazing at imagining super high level world building. It's, it's very, it's always exciting. It makes you feel like a kid listening to someone tell you an incredible story. In regards to Westworld in particular, when you write a TV show, usually I would assume they're a little bit more on the linear side. Westworld I don't know the best way to describe it. It's not necessarily linear and it kind of goes all yeah. over the place. And it's quite complex to watch and kind of understand. From a writing perspective, I can only imagine the depths at which one would have to go into really understand the inner workings there. Did you find that that was working on Westworld in particular was a much different experience than working on another show, let's say Mad Men? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I'm laughing because it is as complicated <laughs> as you you know as it as it seems there is a totally different like it it even requires it not only requires a different level of storytelling brain like you have to hold so much in your head at the same time right. but all it also kind of requires a different logistics like literally in the writer's room you know you're typically using either note cards or whiteboards to write and track the story and on Westworld, we were constantly trying to come up with different ways to just get like a visual representation exactly, of yeah. what timeline is this happening in, which you would think like, okay, well, just each timeline will be in its own color. But that starts to <laughs> get complicated in its own ways, because in that show, the different characters are aware of the, uh, the multiplicity. Only some of them are and some of them aren't. And uh, it's very, very, very complicated. And constantly throughout the show you know, even as someone who had been a writer on the show for months, I would have to pause and go back and look and remind myself. And there is no greater hero than the writer's assistant at any given time on Westworld. Because that person on season two was a, a, a wonderful writer named Debbie Moore, who just the sheer amount of information that that, that person has to keep organized in their head so that you can, as a writer at any moment can say, okay, now wait a minute, 
which timeline are we in in this moment when Bernard figures out X? You know, the, the writer's assistant has that at their, at their fingertips. It's almost a superpower. So it took me months to learn how to pitch episodes that touched all of the different timelines that Westworld needed for its storytelling. And there was lots of refinement. You know, there was lots of like, you move forward on one timeline and then you go back and you kind of rewrite the story a little bit to incorporate these new discoveries that you found for the other timeline. So the writing process itself becomes a little less linear because of the the needs of that kind of storytelling. Did you ever wonder whether writing a show that complex, that even for the writers themselves, that it's complex, that maybe it will be too complex for the audience? Obviously, there was season one, which people understood. You know, we obviously, a hundred years ago, people saw a film of a train coming at them in a theater (laughs) and were afraid. And now they're able to understand a show as complex as this. Does that ever go through your mind? Will we ever see a show like even more complex, I assume, than uh, Westworld? You know, I, it's funny. Honestly, the good thing about it is that even when you're starting to, to get, um, where it's starting to feel massively complicated when you're in the writer's room, the process is that you can always smooth it out as you're moving forward. So when I say, you know, as a writer, you can get lost in the weeds, it's, it's during the high weeds period of trying to come up with stories. So it's already like, you know, a jumble of ideas that you're trying to smooth out and choose and parcel out across episodes. So that just adds a layer of complexity. But the, the process itself, you are able to have things get less complex as you move forward and you nail things down and you go through multiple drafts of the script and you get ready to go and shoot. You can refine and refine and refine until it is a you know, an acceptable level of complexity, an exciting level of complexity instead of an overwhelming level of complexity. So there's definitely, you know, the process is long. And as you go through it, you refine. And then there's also, you know, I think for Jonah and Lisa, their perspective on the audience is that the complexity is part of the joy of the show. The people who love the show love the puzzle box aspect of it. And so there's, you know, I think that their perspective on it is to right up to the audience instead of down to the audience. And, um, you know, the audience will let you know <laughs> when they've had enough, or if, they, if they've hit a limit, you know, you can dial it back. And for me, I think the, the goal is whenever you're working in super complicated plot or a bunch of complicated reveals, you just want to try to keep an emotional consistency and an emotional through line so that even as a viewer, if you're not quite putting all the puzzle pieces together yet, you're connected to a character and what they want above all else. And that can sort of carry you through whatever the the mysteries of the show are that are still unfolding that you've yet to catch up to. As far as uh, Westworld included, but also Mad Men, and I imagine with the upcoming Watchmen, does hype ever factor into what's going through your minds or your mind specifically or the writer's room? When you're working on a show, are you thinking of what the audience is going to say, the input online? Today, we live in a world where there's so much... um, feedback from people um and we've seen it happen with game of thrones especially in star wars there's just so much does that go through your mind when you're like wow there's a lot of pressure maybe 10 years ago people didn't know writers names now they do does that go through your mind are you like wow there's so much pressure on my shoulders oh it's crazy you know it's always interesting to know you know westworld for example you know that within minutes of it airing the discussions about the most micro level details of the show are going to be long threads on Reddit. You know, the people are going to watch the show, the people who, who love it and who want to do so are going to watch the show microscopically. And that, you know, those conversations can then 
become news stories. The pressure of something like Watchmen, I mean, it's been an absolutely fascinating case study to watch. I mean, Damon is obviously hyper aware of this incredibly loyal and observant fan base of this piece of material, this, you know, wildly beloved material to the point where he turned down adapting it several times. And then when he decided to do it, he wrote that there's a letter out there that he kind of wrote an open letter to, to Alan Moore and to the fans expressing his, you know, fealty, his love of the material, and this idea of like, listen, I don't know how the fans are going to receive this particular take on Watchmen, but from Damon's perspective, I want everyone to know it's coming from a place of love and good intention, and that's what I can offer. But beyond that, you'll always feel, you know, the, the yeah, the pressure of the hype, the pressure of, this is a big thing. A lot of eyeballs are going to be on this adaptation of Watchmen. And a lot of people, I think, are going to watch with the, like, not generously, you know, like, who will watch, who are ready to get angry about it, and who are already mad that it's being adapted at all. And I think the one thing you can't do is go and sit down in the writer's room and try to write in a way that will generate a certain audience response. You know, like, you can't really write to that. It's unpredictable. And it will make the writing process and the creative process um, artificial. The best thing that you can do is sit down and do the most honest version of what you like and what that group of writers like and what you think is true and entertaining and smart and let, you know, let the cards kind of fall where they may in terms of uh, how the audience feels about it. Love it. Uh, We have something we do on the show that we call a series of seemingly random questions. (laughs) <laughs> Would you be down to participate in these questions? <laughs> yeah, I'll try. All right, I'll all try. right. We'll, we'll start now. First question. In your Twitter bio, you mentioned having Wikipedia-fueled nightmares. <laughs> Mind explaining what that's all about? I procrastinate <laughs> by reading Wikipedia. I will just sit. I'm one of those writers. I feel like they're most, I feel like it's most writers who will just do literally anything to keep from having to actually write. So I will sit down at my computer and get ready to go and then spend two and a half, three hours reading Wikipedia. And my favorite Wikipedia pages are the ones that are super creepy. I love any list, any like BuzzFeed list of like, oh, the 96 Wikipedia articles that will keep you up at night. (laughs) I am there. I want to read them. I want to know about it. So like creepy paranormal stuff, alien sightings, you know, weirdo genetic disorders. You know, I want to hear about all of it. So that's how I procrastinate and um, can truly sit and freak myself out reading like Wikipedia pages about cryptids or, you know, I think I have the dialogue pass incident on my Twitter. Bio. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love creepy Wikipedia. So if you ever have any recommendations or favorite wiki pages about monsters or aliens, send them my way. Twitter bios explained. Next <laughs> question. Uh, you mentioned writer's block. One of our previous guests seem to think that foods can sometimes help with writer's block. Is there a particular snack in the writer's room that sometimes might help you get to the next level? Food. Yeah. Well, food, yeah. food is totally critical to the, <laughs> to the writer's room process. There's almost, you know, when I'm totally stuck on something or can't get out of my own way, I will just eat, well, any form of garbage. Like I will just eat some garbage, but candy like little mini Twixes and mini Snickers. And I, at some point, uh, was deeply stressed out on a show about a script that I was having to turn around very quickly 
And I was not aware of the fact that I was eating so many of these uh, little candy bars until I was in my office and had been in there for eight hours trying to crank out this draft. And the writer's assistant started putting them under the door, <laughs> like sending me, shoving little, these little mini Twix bars under the door to me, like uh, those little hilarious productivity offering. So yeah, nice. I mean, I, I'll just eat any form of chocolate candy to fill the void of writer's block. <laughs> next question. If you could suggest a question for one of our next guests, what would you ask? Hmm. You know, I always love hearing how people overcome writer's block. It's one of my favorite things to hear writers talk about. Like, what do you do when you are absolutely certain that you don't have it in you, but you have to, you know, when you're just sitting and working on your own thing, you could go literally years without without getting something down. But if you're on a show and you have a deadline and you've got to pay your rent, so you have to turn it in, but you have this terrible plummeting feeling that you can't do it. How do you take the first step? I love listening to writers talk about, talk about that. And I also love hearing writers talk about failure. What's a moment when you felt like you failed at something or you were rejected in a really profound way? And how did you, you know, how did you come back from that? If you could be any one of your characters, who would you choose and why? Could it be one of the uh, upcoming Watchmen characters? Oh my God. To be one. Yeah. Oh Lord. Who would you be? I have had quite a run of characters with some really phenomenal flaws or frustrating circumstances. I mean, honestly, I don't think there's a way for me to love any character more than Peggy Olsen, who is certainly not my character, but, you know, just from a show that I worked on and a mind that I love feeding even a couple of lines of dialogue to, I feel like Peggy is closest to my heart, though she is too certainly complicated in her own way. I guess I would have to pick her. If you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? <laughs> what a great question. If I could take any writer living or dead, I love um, Herman Melville. Tied to my stories, my, my love of hearing stories talk about failure. Moby Dick was a huge failure. Melville felt like a huge failure. So I've been led to understand. So I would have to take either Herman Melville to, um, I mean, I'm going to want to go to Whataburger. I'm from Texas. So nice. I, I, Whataburger is the, the fast food restaurant that's closest to my heart. So I might as well, you know, take Herman there. Um, either that or James Agee, who is one of my other favorite writers of all time. And I would happily take him to Whataburger as well. We could bond over being uh, Southerners. Next question. What's one thing about you or your career? that nobody in the world knows. No pressure. One thing about my career that nobody in the whole world knows. I mean, I, as you can guess from my extremely long list, <laughs> I tend to, to, to talk about it. Uh, I have a, you know, an almost a, a compulsion sometimes to talk about how my career came to be because I, when I was in the wilderness and failing after grad school, I feel like people didn't talk enough about how long it took them to get where they were going. It would have been very soothing to hear it. So I tend to talk about it a lot. One thing that nobody knows. Give me a second. Hold on. No worries. I, you know what? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Probably one thing that, that I've never, ever talked about is this is a totally like not grand reveal <laughs> or anything, but I, I just said James Ag is one of my favorite writers. One of my favorite books in the world is um, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which is a story of James Agee and photographer Walker Evans. 
encountering and documenting um, extreme poverty. And uh, I love the story of James Agee and um, Walker Evans as the friendship that's forming as they're learning what they're learning as they're out on the road. And so I've always had this deep fantasy of adapting either that or the book, The Power Broker. I feel like a lot of my work that I chasing and that I'm working on right now of pilots that I'm writing or whatever are very, very um, boldly feminist. Um, and those are the things that I'm most interested in working on right now. But I feel like my deep long-term project would be one of those two books. It would be my deep fantasy project, but I don't think I've ever told anyone that before. So now we know there you go. first look. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Next question. If you could choose one thing about your career, one learning or insight, that you'd like to pass along to aspiring writers, what would you say? I would say it, it can very much take longer than you think it will. You know, I, that's just, it's my favorite thing to say. And I think because the very first time I said it, like one of the first panels or something that I was invited to do, I had people come up to me and they were so grateful to hear that I had been rejected, had scripts rejected by managers and agents. It took me years to get a writer's assistant job that you know, I had crappy day jobs and didn't know anybody in the business when I first got out here. And so it, you know, I got a piece of advice when I was in grad school that I totally ignored, which was, it will take longer than you think it will. And it just applies to so much. And I feel like it's my favorite piece of advice to repeat, whether it's the script you think you want to sell or the agent you're trying to get or the job you're trying to get. It is okay and normal if it feels like it is taking an eternity to figure out how to break in. I love that. As you look back at your career, looking the other way, what's the end goal for you? I know you mentioned that you're kind of potentially developing your own ideas. Um, yeah. In five, 10 years, are you a showrunner? Running my own shows, you know, that's the goal. So I have two pilots at HBO right now in, in different forms that I'm hoping to push across the finish line. And my focus in the next couple of years is creating my own work, running my own shows, you know, moving on to the next level, the EP level. And I've also in the last couple of years started writing features for the first time. So that's something I want to, my five-year projection is not only getting my own shows off the ground, but um, also writing a couple of movies that I have kind of near and dear to my heart because I'm, I'm kind of learning to enjoy that process, the long, lonely process of trying to write a movie. So those are my goals on the horizon. What kind of movies would you want to make? I know you've worked in a, a decent amount of genre TV. Would it be a genre style uh, film? I know indie film is harder to kind of get produced these days. Yeah, always, for sure. The very first script that I wrote that I took through the process of optioning and then pitching and then writing the script was an article called The Incarcerated Women Who Fight California's Wildfires. It's about incarcerated firefighters. I very specifically chose it to work on because it was the opposite end of the universe from what I was working on in TV. I was, when I found it, I was in the throes of Westworld and I wanted to try my hand at something smaller, a little bit grittier, um, and deeply, deeply human and something that was happening right now. I mean, the article came out and half of California, as it often is, was on fire. So these women were on the front lines fighting fires and really appealed to me to just try on both a craft level and on a human level to write something that felt really relevant and important to what's happening in the world right now. So almost, you know, beyond the thought of, can I get this made into, you know, a big commercial film? It was like, as a writer, can I sit down and write something that's very personal and just um, mine? So I think my future work for now is less 
genre or commercial oriented and more, how can I tell these fairly intimate human stories? As far as um, plugs, did you want to plug anything in particular, particular project? Obviously, Watchmen's in production right now. Anything you want to shout out? You know, Watchmen is the uh, is the exciting thing on the horizon. I have um, a pilot with a very good friend of mine, Leela Bayak, who also wrote on uh, Watchmen and The Leftovers. We have a pilot at uh, HBO called You Know You Want This that is based on a phenomenal series of short stories by an author um, named Kristen Rupinian, who wrote the story Cat Person that went very viral after it was in The New Yorker 18 months ago or so. So we've adapted her book of short stories, which is totally worth checking out. The book of short stories is worth checking out. And less than this is a plug, it's a, it's a like, across your fingers. Everyone cross your fingers. We're trying to, trying to get this show out into the world. So Awesome. Our fingers are crossed. Good yeah. luck. Uh, and our last question, Harry, could you please, drumroll please, <laughs> slide over that envelope. All right. Okay. I've got the envelope. Question is, did you have fun today? I had a wonderful time. Awesome. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. We had I fun really too. Appreciate Thank you guys you. having me on. These are really smart and wonderful questions. Thank you. Well, awesome. We really, really, really appreciate your time uh, and your insights. We had a lot of fun. So thank you again, Carly. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.